Simon on Telegram, hashtag AskSSH, wrote in, It'd be nice to hear your thoughts on using something like Proxmox with VMs versus containers directly on the host, like a home server. I'm curious about the differences in terms of ease of use and management, as well as backups and configuration plus data handling. Love the new show. Keep up the great work. Simon. Good question. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's a question and a half. So uh, I, I, am, uh, I am the guy who was all VMs for you know most things, and I've recently switched everything to containers with the recent round of systems I've set up. So I know you, you though, you are more of a put it in a VM kind of guy. So I'll let you start. Back in the day, I had an Unraid box and that Unraid box was on 24 seven. And then you start thinking to yourself, should be able to do something with this. I should be able to run a Plex server to stream all the media that I've just ripped or something. And then you start running more and more and more services. And before you know it, you have 15 VMs plugged into this box and you think, ugh. That's a lot of kernels. That's a lot of memory. That's a lot of stuff going on. And then containers came along and they changed everything for me. So uh, I'm going to answer the question with a little explanation of what a container is. Now, I appreciate that some of you will already know what a Docker container is or why we even call them Docker containers. So a container is very simple. It's just a running process isolated in memory by the Linux kernel. Now, lots of people confuse that with a lightweight VM, but they're very different. Containers only have a single kernel, which they share amongst each other, hence the isolation in the Linux kernel, because it's all one kernel. Um, And as a consequence, they are way, way, way more efficient than a VM. You know, a VM has has to emulate a network controller, a disk controller, a CPU package, you know, all of this stuff. The whole stack, every video, everything everything. And as a consequence, it's pretty heavyweight. Whereas a container, all the Linux kernel is doing is saying this PID over here has its own namespace or its own C group or an amalgamation of both, um, depending on what you're doing with it. And one of the things that Docker did a few years ago that really changed the container landscape was they made the creation of those C groups and those namespaces simple enough that an idiot like me could do it. So you can do Docker run Nginx and you can have a web server running. Now, that simple example that I gave, you couldn't actually access the web server that was running inside the container because we didn't expose anything. So this leads me on to something else that's really important about containers, isolation. Unless you explicitly permit a resource inside a container to be accessed outside a container, you cannot access it from outside that container. So take Nginx as an example. Nginx runs on port 80, like Apache, like any other web server. In order order to access it, we need to do a port allowing. It's very similar to the port forwarding thing um, that uh, we, we talked about last week. So effectively what you're doing is you are allowing through, I don't want to say a firewall because that's not accurate, but you are allowing ingress into that namespace yeah, I suppose for a lack of a better term, you could call it port forwarding. You're taking something on an external listening port and redirecting it to an internal listening port that the application is on. Absolutely right. And when you create a container, Docker's client allows you to specify a whole bunch of different things. So ports is one example. You can do environment variables. You can specify 
volumes. You can do all sorts of stuff. Those parameters, when you create the container, are split into two halves. So the first half is the external path. So it could be, for example, slash opt, slash app data, slash quasl. And then the second half, there's a colon, and then the second half could be slash config. So that means all of the configuration of slash config inside the container gets written to that path on the host. Right, just to make that a little simpler, you're telling you're telling the container, here is a mount point on your file system, and that actually is a folder that lives somewhere else on your system that you specify in that variable. And you couldn't access that unless you explicitly permit that interaction to happen. Right. So the container can access that volume bind mount that you've permitted, but it can't access anything else. And that whole concept extends all the way from ports to directories to even the users on the system itself. So when you're creating a container, um, there are some best practices around being root or not. And you can get what's effectively a fake root inside the container. So the process that's running thinks it's root, but it doesn't have any root privileges on the host, which is super cool. You said that you've just switched from VMs to containers. What was your aha moment? You said that you said it earlier. You, you mentioned that Docker brought along tools around container technologies that exist in in Linux itself uh, and made them approachable. I, I got the appeal of it um, as a longtime sysadmin. It seemed like a sloppy solution, so I was initially a little resistant to containers because it was like, ah, you're throwing in all of essentially a system into this thing just to run an application, and then who knows if it's being properly updated. You know, I had all of these common concerns people have about containers. And then I think it was one night in front of a fire, just sipping on a beer, I realized, yeah, but dude, you're standing up a VM. <laughs> like, that's that's a whole lot of unnecessary, too. Even even in a situation where it's some sort of driver where the system's aware it's virtualized, like even there, it's it's still a lot of overhead. And so I had to rethink. And then that combined with Docker Compose. And and really, and thanks to the Linux Server I.O. project and, and the Docker Compose uh, files that you've published and shared with me, when I could tear down all of my media center stack and just literally get rid of all of the applications pull them all back down again and re-stand them up and have them reconnect their configurations like nothing happened. And they were all in the absolute latest versions, set up and configured quite nicely. I, I, I just sat there all night just toying with it. I just, it just, in a, just in, a, in a sense of this is one of the most exciting things I've done in the last 10 years. And how many applications are we talking we're not talking one or two, right? No, I mean initially it was it was probably a half dozen, mm-hmm. and now I have a, now we now we have systems in the cloud that run containers. We have the uh, main system, our fake NAS here that runs everything in containers, and my my favorite project is my total offline setup that I have in my RV that's all running on a Raspberry Pi four. And so you say half a dozen. And I think that's fairly common of people coming from VMs because setting those things up is, is it's a labor of love. It takes a lot of time. Whereas with a container, I'm much more willing to invest time in setting it up because I know the app data. And to get back to Simon's question about how to back up configuration, mm, yeah. I, I know that that um, configuration is going to persist through 
reinstalls of the OS through teardowns of the container itself, that configuration is going to be backed up to a maybe a Git repository, maybe an NFS share, maybe through Duplicati, which is actually the way that I do it. That's um, how I'm doing it too. Every night that just runs through my app data folder and just, I guess, sends it all up to Google. Um, yeah, it does a local uh, encryption first, and then mm-hmm. it copies it all up to Google Drive. And so I have my Docker configs all backed up to Google Drive. And if something were to happen to my system, it would just be a matter of restoring those and then re-pulling down the containers. So the, the backup scenario for me is much, much simpler because I can focus on just that one area and completely just disregard both the OS and the application because they're just an implementation detail. And it just as a matter for me, a recovery now is reload a base OS, whichever I prefer, because it doesn't impact the application at all. Um, then go get my Docker Compose files, which I also have backed up, mm-hmm. and run them and, and pull down the backups uh, for the configs. And I am completely back in business. I did a test both here in the studio and in my RV, and it is a five-minute recovery process once the OS is up and running. Assuming that Docker Hub doesn't have a go slow that day. Don't even with me on this. Although in the RV, sometimes I'm on a MiFi. It's always slow. <laughs> it's always slow. You know, that's, that's seriously been a concern of mine for a while is what happens when Docker Hub goes away. Because at the moment, that's the, that's the single source of truth, right? Docker have control over that first namespace. If you want to uh, pull a container from a different registry, you have to put Docker pull right. registry.blah.com slash author slash image whereas with with docker all you got to do is docker pull nginx and and that's fine but what happens when docker hub goes away alex can I introduce you to my friend podman <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> i like trolling the red hat employee sometimes yeah it's actually not bad i've used it uh on our fake nas here and one of the things i like about it is i feel like the implementation is a little more secure and i was introduced to podman via a kind of an odd route I got, I got, I found it via cockpit. I was try, I was trying out cockpit, Fedora cockpit, and saw that it had both Docker support and Podman support. And Podman, let's go try this. I've heard of it. Let's go try it out. And then eventually migrated to using it on the command line. Podman's been developed by Red Hat primarily for use with um, OpenShift and all of its kind of Kubernetes stuff, which I suppose we should probably touch on Kubernetes briefly because it would be unfair, I think, in 2019 to mention containers without orchestration. So, um, so far we've been focused on the home server user, you know, you and me and other nerds like us. Also small business users. I think this is a great application for like the one office server or, or a couple of office servers. So generally speaking, we've been talking so far about one VM or one host that's running multiple containers. Storage is generally handled on a single machine. But what about when you're at scale and you want to have highly available services for massive enterprises or, you know, maybe not even massive enterprises, but, you know, medium-sized websites with several thousand visitors an hour. You can't really afford even a minute or two of downtime, really. And so Kubernetes tries to solve that problem by scheduling containers in what are called pods. Now, an interesting tidbit here is that the reason that pods was used is because a pod is the atomic unit in which containers are deployed in Kubernetes. So a pod could be the main application, let's say Nginx, and there could be a sidecar proxy pod that's doing some clever stuff with Istio or something like that. Um, So the point is a pod is the unit of deployment here, not a container itself. 
So you could have multiple containers in a single pod. Now, the collective for a group of whales is a pod. And what's Docker's logo? A whale. (laughs) (laughs) Not a fair whale. Come on now. Come on now. So anyway, that's one of my favorite bits of trivia that I like to trot out now and again. That's good. But the reason that Kubernetes exists is so that people can schedule these containers in those pods across multiple systems. And if one of those machines, it could be an EC2 instance, or it could be a physical bare metal server, if one of those goes away, then the Kubernetes scheduler is clever enough to figure out that that box over there has died. Um, You've set a replica count of three on this service. I'm going to make sure that there are three instances of this service running at all times that meet my requirements. So it will look at the disk pressure, the memory usage, all that kind of stuff on each node and figure out which node is best suited. There can be stuff like labels applied to nodes and it can get really complicated really quickly, particularly when you start talking about highly available storage. But um, suffice to say that I think for most people, most of the time, Kubernetes is an incredibly big hammer that you don't really need to worry about. And you'll know if you do. <laughs> That's the thing. You'll know if you if you need to worry about it. Interesting other bit of trivia is that Chick-fil-A actually use a hacked version of Kubernetes to deploy to all their restaurants. So what they do is they ship out to each location a NUC pre-configured that then talks back over the wire to a central Kubernetes control plane. Hmm. There you go. That's how you get your chicken. Nobody on site has to do any configuration. They literally unplug one box, replug in the new box, and it just self-configures itself. It makes IT support a little simpler, I suppose. So what have you been doing with your Pi 4 then? Well, I'm I'm pretty happy with this setup. I, I initially started thinking it would be just something maybe I could run uh, Home Assistant on. And that was really the goal, yeah. to run Home Assistant. Mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have discovered that some of the best places you can bring your RV are in places that have very poor or no cellular signal. But I still am a man of luxury. I want to have my toys. And uh, I have everything on smart plugs. Everything is controllable by Home Assistant. So it, it really is, a, it is pretty great for that. But I thought, what if I could do more? This Raspberry Pi 4, when I reviewed it for Unplugged, my takeaway like the summary of my review was, I don't know about desktop ready, but I think it might be server ready. And I was, not to toot my own horn or anything here, but I was so right, Alex. So here's here's what I have now, what I call my Pi stack. I have Home Assistant, Smoke Ping, DD Client, which is a dynamic DNS client, Duplicati, Rantero, which is an offline markdown notes system because ooh, I need to ooh. take maintenance notes and whatnot when I'm not in cell signal, uh, NetData, which is fantastic to just get analytics about how the Pi 4 is handling everything. Sync thing, which <laughs> very happy with on the Pi 4. Wasn't sure how that would go. Fantastic. I've, I've synced over my cellular connection while I've been in the mountains 200 gigs of data using Sync thing on the Raspberry Pi 4. Oh, I bet Ting love you this month. <laughs> and then out, outside, thankfully, actually, what I have for that is uh, I have a, I eBayed an AT&T Unlimited Enterprise plan. <laughs> you know what you are right now on the, on the AT&T network? A, a big red mark. You are an outlier, my friend. The nice thing is, is I move towers. Oh, okay. So I'm not in one location for too long. So I'm, I'm probably really making them wonder. And then I also, not in a container, obviously, have Samba and then... I just recently added Plex this weekend. I just want to take a snapshot here. That's an incredible stack of software 
that is running on this. And I'm not even done yet. I lost count. What are we talking? Eight, nine apps here? Yeah, it's nine apps. It's nine apps. Yeah, <laughs> it's nine apps. You know, one of the things that would have prevented the Raspberry Pi from doing that in the past, uh, I mean, besides the CPU of a potato, is uh, the USB bus being on the same as the network, as, as the Ethernet. That was the game changer for me. They separated those out now. Mm-hmm. So you can get full gigabit. Have you been able to test whether you can actually max out gigabit on this thing? Well, all of the nodes that are connecting to it are on Wi-Fi. So I, I really haven't had a great opportunity. But I just been looking at the system stats, and while well, systems are hitting it pretty hard, and I can see that I'm getting pretty good disk throughput. I got a solid state USB three one terabyte SSD, just a little guy that hangs off the Raspberry Pi. So that's my local storage, and then the network is over Ethernet, plugged right into my router. And then all of the nodes are on wireless. And I, I can stream to multiple televisions at once while Slink Thing is chugging away and Plex is indexing. And, of course, smoke ping and net data are always going as well as Home Assistant. So what's the CPU like? Is it smoking? You know, most of the time it's just around 8 to 10% remarkably. No. Yeah. It, really? When things really kick off, it'll go up. It'll, it'll definitely stay up high. But not... Not not really long. Everything is is one of the nice things about everything being in a container is it's just a process. So the kernel is able to utilize the multiple cores in the Pi Four very effectively, and you combine that with the fast disk I/O and the fast networking, it 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 really feels pretty good. It's definitely slower. There is certainly a big caveat though. Whenever you're writing to the SD card or reading to the SD card, which is where I have my OS things get a little slow. That's really where it feels bad. Package updates. Yes. I am considering going out and getting like one of those extreme performance SD cards and just DDing over. So I know it doesn't support boot from anything but an SD card, but what about if I mounted slash boot on the SD card, but actual file root and everything else like slash Etsy and var and everything else on that external SSD? Is that, is that going to work? It should do, right? It, yeah, it might. I want to try it. So I think I'll get my hands on another Pi 4 soon. Now that I can get them on Amazon, maybe after we get done here. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I want to try is word on the street is that CentOS 7.7 supports the Pi 4. Very nice. Which I might prefer over Raspbian as a host. Um, and then that also is a really good sign that uh, CentOS 8, which I think would make a great Pi 4 base. Mm-hmm. Would, uh, would also be available. But do you want to talk about um, maybe things that we shouldn't run in a container? Like, for example, I chose not to run Samba in a container. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. So over, over the years, I've, I've often thought that running every single system service in the container would be this panacea of awesome. But actually, by the time you start, I mean, there are projects like um, Project Atomic, for example, where you have to run almost everything in a container. And um, I don't know, I just don't, I just don't like it. I just don't like, you know, something like NetData, for example. It wants to have access to slash dev, to slash, you know, everything, right? It needs to know what's happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nosy application. It's got to get in everywhere. And it just doesn't really make uh, sense to put in a container because it would be too restricted to really be of any use. But then riddle, riddle me this, Alex's brain if you're putting it in a container, you're still giving it the same permissions it would have if it was running on the host anyway. So what's the difference, idiot? Like, 
you know, I, I just sometimes think that my own logic is so flawed. Am I daft with that? I guess it depends on how comfortable you are giving a container access to all of the things. Well, it's no worse than installing a package that has to be part of 15 different groups on the host system, is it? Oh, you got me there. I don't know. I'm playing devil's advocate at this at this moment because I don't run Telegraph in a container, even though I could. Here's the counter argument. You don't know for sure what the entire vulnerability surface is in a net data container because there could be an Alpine Linux base in there or an Ubuntu base in there that could have a vulnerability that your host system doesn't. When you run it on the host system, it's just the application plus your known vulnerability surface. When it's in a container that then has full access to your system, that's sort of like allowing this unknown user space and system space to run on your box. All right, so net data might be a bad example. What about something simple like Samba? Now with Samba, I wanted to get to some of the data that the containers are accessing, like the media folders. And I thought, why not even the config folders? Because maybe I've got a preferred YAML editor I'd want to run from my desktop or something. So for that, I thought, because I'm, I'm getting access to the very data that the containers are accessing or living in, it just made sense to put it on the host. Um, but I did give it a more consideration because I could have just passed those particular folders through to a Samba container and had them as mounts on the, you know, on the Samba container box. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation with Samba, huh? Mm-hmm. I, I have a similar situation when it comes to SnapRaid. Um, so I use uh, MergerFS for all of my data data drives to pull them together. And we're actually going to be talking to the developer of MergerFS in a future episode coming up very, very soon. So in order to get some parity across those drives, so a, a bunch of JBOD drives, if you lose one drive, that's it. You're up the creek without a paddle. So I use something called SnapRaid, which allows me to do a snapshot calculation of parity such that I could recover from up to two different drive failures at once. And I run that binary on the host as root. But I've considered running that binary in a container and only giving it access to the disks that it needs. Mm-hmm. I haven't ever done it, but it's crossed my mind. And I, you know, it, there's just thing. there are some things that don't feel right to run in a container. And Telegraph is one, NetData is another, Samba, SnapRaid is another. I, I couldn't tell you why. It's a bit like our subdomain discussion last week, you know. Some things feel right, some things don't. Yeah, I'd like to know what the audience thinks, selfhosted.show slash contact. And also, that contact page would be a great spot for your ideas for my project offline. Like the next thing I want to add to my Raspberry Pi, haven't done it yet because I'm still kind of picking a self-hosted pocket thing that I could save articles to throughout the week. And then if I go somewhere over the weekend and I have no internet, I could still pull up just the articles I want. It's like just the internet I want on my Raspberry Pi 4. So if you have suggestions for that, uh, that'd also be good in the contact. Self-hosted.show slash contact. We actually found one over the weekend called uh, Shiori, the simple bookmark manager. So that's something we're going to be looking at in a future episode. And I've also been told Wallbag is really good. What did you just call me? (laughs) (laughs) So you can find the show on Twitter at selfhostedshow. And of course, you can find Alex on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle there, Alex? At ironicbadger. What? And I'm at Chris LAS. The network is at Jupiter Signal. And uh, don't forget that hashtag, AskSSH on Twitter, Telegram, um, pretty much anywhere that we're lurking, you can pop it in there and we'll try to answer it on a future episode. Absolutely. Now, I did have one thing that I wanted to say about the hashtag. Okay. The hashtag's working great. We're getting loads of great feedback. 
one gentleman posted a bit of a mini essay on Twitter to us the other day. Oh, is that what got you going? Feel free to use the jupiterbroadcasting.com contact page for any long form feedback. You've been talking about this for days, literally like a week. <laughs> I'm, I'm turning into an old man. What can I say? <laughs> That's true. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. There is Telegram if you have a longer form and we're still seeking your suggestions on what that S probably means. I mean, we know, we know what it means. There's a t-shirt here waiting for a lucky winner or something. What does the extra S mean in hashtag ask SSH? All right. I think that's everything for our episode all about containers. 